Thank you for downloading this podcast from Emmanuel Church Lurgan. At Emmanuel, our vision is to help rewrite the story of Craigavon, Ireland and the nations with the good news of the Kingdom of God. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. Thanks, Robbie. Well, God is in the house, isn't he? The sense of his spirit here tonight, I think, is palpable. And I just really want to encourage you not to be afraid of that, not to be tempted to step out from under what God is doing here, but step in further instead. Because he's here to do business with us, and I think he's here to do real business with us tonight. I know the prayer team are already sensing that God has a challenge for each of us tonight. And I really encourage you to open your mind and your heart and be ready to hear Uh, what God would say to you. The first thing I want to say at the very beginning tonight is that I'm not obsessed with this subject. (laughs) But they seem a bit obsessed with making me preach about it. I mean, it's unbelievable. Phil's here, Chris is here, Al and Dave are probably hiding down the back. Uh, Why I'm here, I have no idea. But there you are. I've had one of those out of your comfort zone kind of weeks. On Wednesday, I was way out of my comfort zone in Fermanagh reporting on William and Kate's raft race. I'm much more comfortable talking about politics than talking about royalty. Um, On Friday, I was way out of my comfort zone again because the Portadown Cares charity, who do incredible work in this city, um, had finally, after four years, persuaded me to be a judge on their, now wait for it, Strictly Come Dancing. I know, Theresa May is a better dancer than I am. Now, we did raise 25,000 pounds on the first night alone, but my niece, Hannah, who some of you know, who runs her own dance academy, just found it hilarious that they had asked me to judge alongside her just because I do some work in television. And tonight, I am so far out of my comfort zone, talking about lust in church again. (laughs) I have prayed all week that Dave would make a miraculous recovery, but it hasn't happened. When he texted me a few days ago to ask if I could substitute for him, I asked him, "Um, what's the topic? Lost, he replied. I really did wonder for a moment if Phil and Dave were winding me up, because it's less than a year since they uh, gave me the Song of Solomon to preach on, and you know all about that. It's the most intimate book of the Bible by miles. So, uh, as Robbie said, we're continuing in our 166 series, exploring the Sermon on the Mount. And just to be clear, if you were late in or didn't quite catch it, why 666? That's the number of hours there are. Sorry, 166, not 666. (laughs) That would be a very long week and an interesting one too. (laughs) If you're wondering why it's 166, that's the number of hours there are in the week when you take away the two that we gather here. I actually wouldn't have noticed that only my wife. I saw the look of panic on Ruth's face. (laughs) If we're only living as God intends us to for the two hours when we gather like this, um, then our lives are not being transformed. We are missing out. And trust me, God is missing out 
on why we were created, to worship him 168 hours of the week. So let's just pick up where Phil left off last week. We're in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Incredible words. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off. Cut and th- sorry, if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. There are no prizes for guessing the most Googled word on the internet. Sex. An estimated 92% of songs in the charts at any given time are either about sex or mention it. Two out of every three TV shows have sexual content or reference sex. And get this for a statistic. Last year globally, the revenue from the porn industry was higher than Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, and Netflix combined. That's not counting illegal activity, porn without copyright, prostitution, human trafficking, sex slavery. The analysts reckon that the untaxed industry doubles the revenue. And the church has no better statistics. This isn't about them out there. It's about us in here. And when we think about the context of those statistics, Jesus' words about taking drastic action don't seem quite so drastic. Tonight, I've just got four really short points for us to think about. And the first one is this. This isn't someone else's problem. It's our problem. This isn't someone else's problem. It's our problem. It's really striking that Jesus doesn't say, it is written. He says, you have heard that it was said. He isn't correcting the teaching of Moses when he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He's correcting the teaching of the Pharisees the religious leaders who were playing their usual game of turning this into someone else's problem. You see, it's so easy to say, oh, I'm okay, I've kept that commandment, I haven't slept with anyone else's husband or wife. It's someone else who's done that. Listen again to the words of Jesus. But I tell you that anyone, just stop right there. In some versions, it's the word everyone. This isn't someone else's problem. It's everyone's problem. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus is immediately stripping away again at our self-righteousness, our attempt to make ourselves good enough. It's that old religious spirit making us believe that we're okay because we're better than someone else. The religious leaders were programmed to just point the finger at everyone else. Well, at least we're not prostitutes or pornographers or adulterers or fornicators. Jesus is reprogramming that thinking the whole way through the Sermon on the Mount. Look in the mirror, he says. 
These things are not someone else's sin. They're our sin. There is not a single one of us in the room who has not at one point or another had an inappropriate thought. So there is not a single one of us who does not need Jesus. And I'm sorry, ladies, you can't hide behind the word men in this text. Lust is an equal opportunities employer. Don't be blind to that. Remember how blind King David was to his own sin? You know the story. He couldn't sleep one night, stepped out onto the roof, saw a woman bathing. Did he turn away? Oh, no. He sent for Bathsheba, slept with her, and had her husband, one of his finest military leaders, murdered. So God dispatched the prophet Nathan to have a word with David, to tell him a story. It was about a rich man who slaughtered a poor man's only sheep so that he could throw a party for his friends. David was enraged. Surely, as the Lord lives, this man must die, he says. Cue Nathan's devastating reply. Four words. You are the man. You are the man. I have to be honest with you and say I have heard God whisper those words over and over again this week while reflecting on this passage. David, you are the man. It's crushing, but that's the whole point. The realization that we are the men, we are the women, that we will never be good enough to earn our own place changes everything. Until we recognize how helpless we are, we will never recognize the hope that he offers. Rick Warren puts it so simply, you never know God is all you need until God is all you have. Have mercy on me, cried David, according to your unfailing love. Go home and read his penitent psalm, Psalm 51, it's beautiful. He came to God with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, knowing God does not despise those things. Listen to me. If these words of Jesus knock you off your feet, if they knock you down, stay down. Because that's the right place to be whenever God reveals sin in your heart. Stay at the foot of the cross. You know why? That's where you find Jesus. Jesus sits with the sinners. This isn't someone else's problem. It's our problem. And then secondly, this isn't about the external, it's about the internal. Let's return to where we paused in the reading. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. Sexual sin doesn't begin in the bed. It begins in the head. Now, let's be really clear about this. Jesus is definitely not saying if you've thought about uh, sharing your bed with someone who doesn't share your name, you may as well just go ahead and do it. Absolutely not. He's still claiming ground from the religious spirit here. He's attempting to switch our focus from the what we do to the who we are. The religious leaders, you see, were really into the letter of the law, keeping rules, ticking boxes, an impossible self-righteousness. Jesus is into the spirit of the law. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us what the theologians call an antithesis. 
That's when you put one concept alongside another concept to reveal the true concept. You have heard it said, but I tell you. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Last week, he was comparing anger to murder. Seems a bit extreme. This week, we're looking at the comparison between lust and adultery. Seems a bit extreme. He's calling us to a higher standard than the one being set by the religious leaders of his day to the one that's still being set by the religion of our day. It's not about the outside. He's calling us to invite him to search our hearts and to know who we really are. You see, you can be a virgin but still have a heart that's filled with lust. You can be a faithful spouse but have a wandering eye and a wandering heart. You can choose to only watch uh, PG-rated movies but have an X-rated imagination. More than a thousand times the Bible talks about the heart. It's not referring to that physical part of us, that the, the vital organ that pumps blood around the body. It's referring to a spiritual part of us, the source of our emotions and desires. And it's a powerful thing. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That's power. But it's not pure. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. There's the death of self-righteousness right there. It's beyond our cure. So there's no point pretending we're okay. Because God doesn't look at the outside. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus wants the cross to change who we are, not just what we do. Rico Tice tells this great story about a posh family from London. Their little boy came home from his private school one day, threw off his cap, and decided to play spaceman, but got this really expensive vase 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 stuck on his head. Mom rang Dad. Uh, he didn't want her to smash this priceless heirloom, but there was a problem because he had taken the keys of her car to work with him that morning. She would just have to take the bus to A&E, but she couldn't bear the embarrassment. So what did she do? She put his school cap back on top of the vase. She had a son with a face for a face. The Pharisees might have approved of that approach, because for them it was all about appearances. But you, you can't cover a multitude of sins. This isn't someone else's problem, it's our problem. And this isn't about the external, it's about the internal. And thirdly, this isn't about dating, it's about destiny. Something much more important than dating. Back to the text again, these last two verses. If your right eye causes you to stumble, guide it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Sounds really drastic, doesn't it? Well, it's not as drastic as the alternative. Twice in two verses, we read the same two words, into hell. Jesus hasn't lost touch with reality. We're the ones who've lost touch with reality about the consequences of sexual sin. 
You see, there's an old saying, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character and reap a destiny. Jesus isn't urging us to pluck out our eyes or amputate our arms, literally. He's urging us to sacrifice whatever we have got to sacrifice before we reach our destiny, judgment. Has our fear of looking a bit legalistic or looking a bit prudish in front of other people overtaken our fear of the holiness of God? D.A. Carson puts this so well. He writes, what then does Jesus mean if he's not calling us to hack off parts of our body? Just this, we are to deal drastically with sin. We, are, we must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling it a little around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. That's strong talk. It's painful talk. It takes quite a while to dig out a root in the garden that you don't want but it's always worth it in the end. The Bible is so clear about the seriousness of sexual sin. Marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral, Hebrews 13. But listen to me, the Bible is equally clear about the grace of God. If I was writing a book on this subject, I'd be tempted to entitle it 50 Shades of Grace. Listen to me tonight. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you've done it with. There's more than enough grace in the house tonight to deal with that. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, sexuality issues, gender identity, whatever the struggle, God sees the heart. Hear those words. God sees the heart. There's more than forgiveness at the cross. There's freedom there too. His sacrifice way, way outweighs any sacrifice that we might need to make. Lots of you will have watched the Matrix trilogy. I've still no idea what those movies are about. But there's one really powerful scene where Morpheus is walking with Neo in what looks like New York. He's attempting to explain what the Matrix is, but Neo is distracted by a woman in a red dress. Were you listening to me, Neo, he asks, or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? When he tells him to turn around and look again, he finds himself staring down the barrel of a loaded gun. Now there's an illustration. Sexual sin is no game. It never ends well. So we've got to deal with it because it will dictate our destiny ultimately. This isn't someone else's problem, it's our problem. This isn't about the external, it's about the internal. And this isn't about dating, it's about destiny. And this is the bit you've really been waiting for. This isn't about sex, it's about lust. They're two very different things. You see, people tend to look at sex in one of three ways. For some, it has become a god. They elevate it to a place beyond boundaries. But it never ceases to amaze me that those who demand sex without limits never seem to be satisfied. We must be on like the 447th sequel to Fifty Shades of Grey. Never satisfied. 
Just lift any run-of-the-mill women's magazine. Not that I read women's magazines. But one month, it's 20 ways to improve your sex life. Next month, it'll be 40 ways to improve your sex life. So now you know what to buy your wife for her birthday, a year subscription. By the end of it, she'll have 1,560 ways to improve your sex life. <laughs> Never satisfied. For some, sex has become a god. But for others, it's something gross. Now, you might have experienced adultery or divorce and are the product of a home where men spoke ill of women or women spoke ill of men. That can shape you. I understand that. And when it comes to viewing sex as something dirty, I have to say, conservative evangelicals in Northern Ireland have turned it into an art form. But what happens when you hide it in the wardrobe like the Christmas presents and tell the children not to go there? They go there. But before we judge our parents too harshly, 42% of parents today say they've talked to their children about premarital sex, their teenagers. 42%. 27% of their teenagers say they've had the conversation. If we think we're talking to our teenagers, we're not talking to our teenagers. For some, it's a God. For others, it's something gross. But the Bible couldn't be clearer. Sex is a gift. You might have to whisper it in some churches, especially in Northern Ireland. But sex was God's idea. God made Adam and Eve. God told them to be fruitful and multiply. God looked at what he had created and declared it to be what? Good. He didn't look down one day and say, what are they doing? <laughs> Adam and Eve's sexual intimacy did not take God by surprise. And remember, there is, as I said earlier, a whole book of the Bible on this. The Song of Solomon, it graphically describes a couple's wedding night. Now, there's a really awkward family devotion around the table for you. <laughs> you know, I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it. Married couples, it's time to take back the ground the enemy has stolen. This is God's gift to us. So let's dispel a few myths. It's not a sin to find someone attractive. If you're single, it's not a sin to, to eagerly anticipate sex within marriage. If you're married, it's not a sin to desire and pursue sex with your spouse. It's not a sin to be turned on. It's not a sin to experience temptation. It's what you do with the temptation that matters. It's how we handle the temptation. John Piper puts this so beautifully. He says, lust is sexual desire minus the honor and holiness. That's so good, isn't it? Lust is sexual desire minus honor and holiness. If it dishonors another person, or dishonors the holiness of God, that's when it's a sin. So this is not someone else's problem, it's our problem. This is not about the external, it's about the internal. This is not about dating, it's about destiny. And this is not about sex, it's about lust. We're almost finished, so I'm going to give you a little bit of practical advice. 
Young people, don't want to pick on you tonight, but I'm going to start with you. Get married. Men are waiting until they are at least 30. Women until their late 20s. Why? Guys, step away from the Xbox. Girls, just put your career on hold for a little while. Get married. And I really don't want to pick on the guys because statistics show the girls are just as challenged in this area. But I really feel our young men need to hear this. You've got to conquer lust before it conquers you. Conquering women does not make you a man. Conquering lust makes you a man. The spirit-filled man understands self-control and self-discipline. And the secret for you both, young men and women, is to see each other as family. We need to break this perverted notion that's around that every person we come into contact with is a potential sex object. Every person you come into contact with, and particularly people you are attracted to, remember this, they are made in the image of Almighty God. And now married couples, it's your turn. You're going to like this one. Drink water. What do I mean by that? It's from Proverbs, some teaching on intimacy. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Let me just break that down for you ladies. If he doesn't drink enough water, he'll die of thirst. And gentlemen, if you expect her to drink too much, she'll drown. We need to strike, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's good, Jacqueline. We need to strike a balance in our lives that reduces the temptation to go looking for another well. I so hope my mother's not watching this on live stream. <laughs> Paul writes to the couples in Ephesus, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. We don't deserve her respect, guys, if we're putting our needs before hers. And no matter who you are in the room tonight, single, Married, young, or old, put God first. You've got to break the first and second commandments long before you ever reach the seventh one. If we put God first, we'll never reach that point. None of us is defined uh, by our sexuality. We are defined by the fact that we have an opportunity to to reach fulfillment in a relationship with God. Isn't that incredible? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. That's what it's about. You might think I've overlooked the most significant word in the whole passage, but I haven't. I've saved it for last. What's the difference between looking at someone and looking at them lustfully? Well, the English translation of the word is terrible. Because our English word lust has such negative connotations. But the Greek word Jesus used is neutral. And it literally means to have a longing in your soul for something. 
It's the same word that's used of the Old Testament prophets, longing for the Messiah to come. So it's certainly not negative in that connotation. So do you know what I think God's doing here? What Jesus is giving us in this sermon? The code for kingdom living. Change the object of your desire. That's how we break the stronghold of sexual sin in our lives. We need to fix our eyes upon someone else. If only David hadn't turned, to, t- turned away from Bathsheba and fixed his eyes on God, the sin would never have happened. Sex doesn't give us life in all its fullness. It's Jesus who gives us life in all its fullness. You know what I think Jesus really in this whole passage is trying to tell us? If I was to translate it, I'd say this. You have heard it said, two hours a week with me is enough. But I tell you, there's another 166 hours of life-changing encounter with Jesus on offer. No earthly pleasure, no earthly pleasure, no matter what any magazine will tell you, comes close to the joy of total and absolute surrender of the mind, body, soul, and spirit to the one who is the King of Kings. If the Sermon on the Mount teaches us anything, it is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. If something is drawing our attention from him, risking our relationship with him, we need to ditch it. His reckless love demands a radical response. In the words of the old spiritual song, penned by an unknown African slave, which is interesting when you think about how many people are enslaved to sexual sin. In the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When I am alone, when no one else is there, no one else can see what's going on, give me Jesus so that when I come to die, give me Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Before we um, close tonight, I'm going to do what Robbie explained at the beginning, and that is just give you a moment or two to reflect on the two questions we're asking at the end each night in this series. And the first one is this, what is God saying to me? And perhaps as you take a moment or two to reflect on that, the band will come back. You might want to just write something in your journal to remember what God is saying to you in this moment. So just take a moment of stillness and reflect on what is God saying to me here? And then perhaps there is the greater challenge. What am I going to do about it? Just take a moment and reflect on that also. What am I going to do about what God is saying to me tonight?
Father, tonight we just want to thank you for Jesus. To acknowledge the fact that he is enough. Would you give us the courage when the temptation comes to look longer at something else that we shouldn't, to just turn around and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Father, in the name of Jesus tonight, we pray that you would step in to stop footholds becoming strongholds in our lives in the area of sexual sin. You know our hearts and we confess and we repent and we ask you to make us new, to give us new hearts. Hearts that put Jesus first every single time. 168 hours of the week. Because he's worth it. Jesus, we want you to know that we love you and we know you're worth it. As we close tonight, I just want to say that at the beginning of, of our gathering tonight, some of the prayer ministry team really felt God challenging some of us to take a really courageous stand tonight. And I want to, and that's so connected with what Robbie said at the beginning. Robbie and I hadn't had a conversation, but what he said about Judas at the beginning so connects with this, because what happened for Judas is the, he allowed something else to take the place of God in his life, to come first. Lust isn't always about sexual sin. It might be for you, it might be about a pornography issue or an affair or something going on that shouldn't be going on. But lust can be about money, career, ambition, possessions, a better car, a better house, whatever it is. I believe God is in the house and challenging us tonight to put Jesus first. So if you're just struggling with any of those things, some of the prayer team are going to come to the front during the singing of our closing song. And I'm going to really encourage you to dig deep tonight. Remember those words, crush it, dig it out. Come on, let some of the team pray with you. Take a stand for Jesus tonight. Because he took one for you. And he's always worth it. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.